Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. Even if you don't know Phil Vischer, you almost certainly know his work and his voice. Back in 1993, he introduced audiences to a cast of vegetables that would take the world by storm. Veggie Tales was born, and 25 years later, it's still going strong. As the creator of Larry the Cucumber and Bob the Tomato, Phil has spent a lifetime teaching the Bible and having fun doing it. In this episode, he talks about the serious work of humor and the importance of being silly. I wanted to start with a couple of things uh, by answering two questions. First, why aren't Christians funnier? And then second, is there a kind of funny that we should actually not be? So first, Christians, funny, not, generally, why? I was... um, I spoke at Taylor University, and I decided to drive from Chicago down towards Indianapolis, and I I kept driving by uh, billboards put up by Christians. I don't know if you've ever witnessed this phenomenon, but I thought it was interesting. I actually talked about it on, I do a weekly podcast, and I talked about it in the one that's coming up next week, the state of the art of Christian billboardry. The first one I went by just simply said, hell is real. That was it. No follow-up, no website, no Bible reference, just hell is real. Whenever I see Christians attempting to do mass communication, I always kind of put myself in the shoes of the completely unsuspecting, you know, secularist or nominal whatever, you know, and how would I react to that, you know, and, and it's like, I don't even know what I would do with that, because first of all, the obvious answer is no, it isn't, and then you just keep on driving, you know, and you look at the next billboard, which says there's a McDonald's on exit 22B, and you say, oh, well, that's more relevant to my life than the last billboard I just saw. That actually speaks to a need I have for a a McFlurry. Um, So, you know, and there was a time where, I I guess what we were trying to do with that short, pithy statement is remind people of something we think they probably believe but are maybe ignoring and therefore living non-moral lives because of their ignorance of the thing that we all know is actually true. Because it's not actually an argument for hell. Just to say hell is real is not an argument for hell. It's just a statement. So we haven't... We haven't convinced anyone of anything. We've just throwing out kind of a... And, and then driving back to Chicago, I noticed on the backside of that same billboard, it said, Jesus is real. I was like, was I supposed to like see that at the same time? Or are they assuming everyone's making round trips between Chicago and Indianapolis? And did I do it in the right order? Are you supposed to start in Chicago so that you can decide hell is real and then come back to Chicago to say, oh, Jesus is real? I mean, I don't even know if I did it right or exactly what I was supposed to do. What I do know is it wasn't in any way clever, silly, or memorable. Then I went by the next one, just had a, a big picture of a Bible. And it said, the Holy Bible, absolute, inspired, final. 
And I, I, my first thought was, that sounds more like a threat than, <laughs> like, you know, that seems like something that we would say when we're trying to win an argument and we want to appeal to scripture as the final authority and we just want you to have to give up and, and lie down and, and roll over. Again, no follow-up, no, you know, here's what you should do with this piece of information. We're just, we're throwing random statements and, and paying money to do it. Then I went by one that simply said, in quotes, and the false prophet will come from the church at Rome. And I thought, oh, great. So now, we're just, now we're just throwing out random insults to our Catholic friends as, as they drive by. Again, there's no humor in it. There's nothing clever. There's nothing memorable. There isn't even any, what am I supposed to do with this information? And then finally, uh, as I was getting back close to Chicago, I drove by. After you die, you will meet God. Again, your point I don't even know what to do with that. Because obviously, if you're the happy secularist, you just simply say, no, I won't. No, I won't. You, communicating with humor is, is much more effective in our culture today. And I want to play something for you uh, for how humor can allow a fairly profound message to get across in a much uh, stickier way. Um, uh, if you don't know who Craig Ferguson is, he's a late night host and a stand-up comedian. And, and guys like that, you know, I love it when they actually open up and reveal something deeper or even, or even just say something profound to the audience they've earned by being silly but now have this relationship built. Um, a couple of years ago, just out of nowhere, Craig Ferguson opened his show like this. <laughs> I figured it out. I figured it out. What? I'll tell you. Everything. Why everything sucks. Here's why. In the 1950s, late 50s, early 60s, a bunch of advertising guys got together in Madison Avenue and decided that what they were trying to do was sell products to younger people. They thought we should try and sell products to younger people because then they'll buy things their whole life. So they'll try and sell them soft drinks or bread or cigars or whatever the hell they were selling them. And they, they, they thought we'll try and appeal to young people. It was just an advertising thing. They didn't mean any harm by it. It's just there's a little bit of market research. And so they did that and they told the television companies and the movie companies and the record companies and everybody started targeting the youth because the youth was the place where you were going to be able to sell things. And what happened was that in a strange kind of quirk of fate, youth began to be celebrated by society in a way that it had never been in every, any time in human history because what used to be celebrated was experience and cleverness. But what happened was that what became valuable was youth, the quality of youth, which made you a consumer. So what happened is that they, they started to concentrate on, on these people. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, but wait a minute, Craig. In ancient Greece, they deified the youth. No, they didn't. They deified beauty. Ah, different, right? <laughs> so, what happened is that youth became more important and became more important and became more important. And society started to turn on its head because with the deification of youth, youth has a byproduct. The byproduct of youth is inexperience. By the nature of having youth, you don't have any experience. You're too young to have it. It's not your fault. But, <laughs> but you're youth. You're young. And you're kind of stupid. So they sell you stuff, right? 
So therefore, the deification of youth began, but the deification of youth didn't stop there. The deification of youth kind of evolved and turned into the deification of imbecility. So it became, so it became, it became fashionable and desirable to be young and to be stupid. <laughs> started to be a fashion and that grew and that grew and that grew and that grew and now that's what all the kids want to be. Uh, I don't, I just want to be young and stupid but you know what? That's not what you want to be. You don't want to be that. Don't be young and stupid. Look. And then, and then what happened is that people were frightened to not be young. They didn't want to not be young. They, they didn't want to get older, so they started dyeing their hair. They started mutilating their faces and their bodies in order to look young. But you can't be young forever. That's against the laws of the universe. <laughs> and all of this horrible quirk and this terrible movement, nobody meant it. Nobody meant any harm. But now we're in this terrible place where we have the ooh-la-la. Joris, brother! <laughs> last thing he said was, and now we're in this terrible place where we have the bleep Jonas Brothers. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Okay, take that same message. You know, we deify youth, and with it we deify imbecility, and then not, we're all afraid to get old. Uh, put that same message in the mouth of Pat Robertson. Nobody listens. Nobody cares, because that's what we expect. You know, there's the unexpectedness of being humorous and meaningful is what catches our, our culture off guard. I, I, uh, how many of you have heard uh, Louis C.K.'s rant on Conan about cell phones? He just went off. He just went off on why he won't give his kids a cell phone because it's stupid, you know? And if you want your kids to do what stupid kids do, then, you know... That's stupid, and, and, and where he ended up going was just blew people away, and, and you know, Conan was kind of like, really, are you going here? Was that we all use technology, we all use our cell phones to distract us from the emptiness we have inside, you know, from the, the deep down loneliness and the sense that life is meaningless. And whenever that feeling starts to rise up, we send a tweet, we do something, we go online, uh, and he doesn't want his kids to do that. He wants them to face the sadness of life. You know, now that's a message, that's a heavy message. But the audience never stopped laughing because of the way he told it and never stopped paying attention. They never tuned him out. You know, and as of like this morning, that clip online has been watched five and a half million times. Um, it went viral. It absolutely went viral. It's the second thing he did. The first, he was interviewed on NPR. Uh, he's a very, very uh, foul-mouthed uh, comedian, so I don't recommend going there. But he was interviewed on NPR, and, and he has a show uh, on FX uh, that's called, it's been called the, the Best Comedy on Television. It was up for nine Emmys this year. And he was interviewed on NPR on, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And, and Terry Gross said, you got all these themes of uh, these the conservative Christians, these evangelical Christians keep showing up on your show. Why, why are you so fascinated with evangelical Christians? And he said, well, I did, this was interesting. He said, uh, I did this thing on Conan, and he was talking about the first thing he did on Conan that went viral, which was a rant on how life is wonderful and no one appreciates it. You know, how great we have it and how everyone just complains all the time. 
Um, and he said, and it went viral, and he said he found out later that pastors started playing it in churches. Um, and so all these Christians discovered him and then would go to his website because they liked him and then were shocked at you know, what he actually does in his stand-up routine when he's not on network television and he can say whatever he wants. And they started writing him letters and saying, why are you, you know, we like you. Why are you so nasty? You know, why can't you be cleaner? Because so, we like you. Um, and so he was trying to explain you know, to Terry Gross this dynamic and how he kind of became fascinated with evangelical Christians and, and the, the lines they draw around acceptable content you know, and that because he was outside those lines that they couldn't, they couldn't like him anymore. So he actually wrote an episode of his, his sitcom um, where he goes on, on a USO tour of Afghanistan and one of the people he's on tour with is a, uh, like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader who, of course, because she's from Texas, is an evangelical Christian. And, so, and she hears him do his act in Afghanistan and basically does the same argument in the show of why can't you, you know, she actually says, why can't you do Christian comedy? You know, why can't you do Christian humor? Uh, so that, it, that everyone could enjoy it. You know, and, and so he, he actually plays out his relationship with the Christian community because he doesn't understand the need for all these tight little boundaries. It's really fascinating um, to see people use humor to wrestle with really deep issues, which used to be uh, more of a tradition even in the church, but has kind of stopped being, which leads me to my next issue of why... Aren't Christians in America funnier? And I think it's easy for, for critics to say, well, it's because, you know, they're just, there's something about the gospel or there's something about going to church that just sucks the funny out of you. So obviously you don't want to do that because you'll have the funny sucked out of you. Um, no, that's not it. I think largely the reason that, you know, Christian and comedy are kind of ox oxymorons for most of the culture is that we're Protestants. And Protestants come historically from Northern Europe. And Northern Europe is not known for its comedy. Uh, no one goes to the Swedes or the Germans for their entertainment. Ever. I mean, what is that? What have they've given us ABBA? That's pretty much it. You know, that's the only entertainment to ever come out of Northern Europe is, is ABBA. And, but the early waves of settlers, early waves of immigrants that came to America were almost all Northern European Protestants. They were Germans, they were Swedes, they were Dutch. Uh, and then you say, wait a minute, what about the British? The British, there are funny British, right? You, you know, from, from Shakespeare to Gilbert and Sullivan to Monty Python, there's lots of funny British. Yes, they're not the ones that came over. Because <laughs> they were doing just fine in London. They had no desire to come to America. Who came to America? The Puritans. How unfun were Puritans? <laughs> When Puritans were running Boston in the 1670s and 1680s, they made it illegal to celebrate Christmas. It was actually against the law to celebrate Christmas in Boston for about 20 years. In fact, if you were caught singing a Christmas carol, you got a, a five-farthing fine. For singing, that's how much fun the Puritans were, because celebrations like that were sinful and probably Catholic. And anything that was sinful and/or Catholic had to be banned. Um, 
So that's our, that's our British heritage in America. It's not the funny ones. It's not Monty Python. It's, it's the Puritans. So and the other issue was these settlers, these early settlers that formed you know, the, the Protestant backbone of America were largely rural, you know, small town. Okay, the entertainment industry is not a small town industry because you have to have an audience. You have, there are a couple of things that you need to make entertainment work. You have to have a, a bunch of people gathered together to make an audience with free time and discretionary income. Okay, that's not farmers. That's not Dutch farmers in the middle of you know, southern Michigan or, or northern Iowa. Um, the next waves of immigrants were southern European immigrants uh, and Catholic immigrants, basically the, the Italians and the Irish. Uh, were not southern European, but they were uh, Irish Catholic. And they were urbanites. They came to the cities. The cities were exploding. They collected in the cities to work in the factories. They had spare time and discretionary income, and the entertainment industry in America was born largely out of New York City, uh, and in Philadelphia and just a couple of northeastern towns. Um, and people will say, and this is interesting to get into the history of Hollywood, because people will say, you know, well, Hollywood is Jewish. Um, and even, you know, today, if you're in a meeting in Hollywood, you're highly likely to hear Yiddish phrases spoken in the meeting because of the, the Jewish heritage of Hollywood. There's an amazing book written on uh, the heritage of Hollywood. It points out that of all the major studios, only one was founded by a Gentile. You know, of all major Hollywood studios. And what was his name? Walt Disney. Yeah, it was the only Gentile to ever start a major studio. Uh, but what's even more interesting, though, is that all the, of all the other major studios, they were all founded by first or second generation uh, European Jewish immigrants, uh, only one of them by a Western European Jewish immigrant. Uh, one was from Germany, a, a, a German Jew. All the others were Czechoslovakian, Latvian, Hungarian Eastern. So even in L.A., okay, when, when the founders of the early studios moved from New York to L.A., do you know why? Everyone thinks because of the weather. It was partly the weather. Primarily, it was to get away from Thomas Edison uh, because Thomas Edison claimed that he owned the patent not just on movie cameras but on making movies so that anyone who exposed film owed him money. And because people in New York City were sneaking around making movies without paying him, he hired thugs to patrol New York City. And if he found someone making a movie without a license, they'd break their camera, they'd break their kneecaps, they'd do whatever they had. So the first uh, filmmakers that fled New York for Los Angeles were actually doing it to protect their knees. So these Eastern European Jewish immigrants all moved to L.A. where there was already a Jewish community, but it was German Jews, it was Western Jews, and they even looked down on these new, they called them the Hollywood Jews, and they didn't like them, but they wouldn't socialize with them. They, because why? Because they were in the entertainment industry, and the entertainment industry was tawdry. It was icky. It was yucky. And, and why, why was it viewed tawdry even by you know, the Western, the classier Jewish uh, community? Because it came out of vaudeville, because it came out of burlesque, because it was associated with fan dances and associated with, uh, with minstrel shows of the 1840s. The highest paid performer in New York City in the 1840s was the top minstrel performer, which means a white man who painted his face black. Okay, he was the highest paid star in New York. Protestants not only did not live heavily in New York City, 
but even if they did, they tended to be captains of industry, and they wouldn't go anywhere near that entertainment industry. It was beneath them. This is largely why uh, these Eastern European Jewish immigrants jumped into it wholeheartedly because they, because they weren't allowed. If you were Jewish in New York in, in the, the 1890s, you could work at a law firm, but you could never make partner. Uh, you couldn't be a member of a country club. You couldn't have a horse at the horse track. You were, you were locked out of most normal industries. And so some of these Jewish immigrants saw the opportunity basically to build their own industry that they could own. Uh, when they moved to L.A., they discovered that the, the Protestants in L.A. would also not let them join their country clubs and not let them join their, their, have a horse at their racetrack. So they started their own racetrack. They started their own country club, uh, basically started a whole little world. And the things that they started today are where most movie deals get made. These, the, the country club that was started by the Hollywood Jewish immigrants. Um, so there's a just fascinating story about how how Protestants looking down on Jewish immigrants created Hollywood, that dynamic. Um, but so all the early uh, comics, you know, were uh, what you would call Borscht Belt comics from the East Coast, which was a Jewish comic circuit, almost all Jewish comedians. Most of the early actors were Jewish. And for Protestants, that was an icky world that you did not go near. You didn't go to the movies. My grandfather died having gone to only two movies in his life. Uh, the Jesus film and Jonah, a VeggieTales movie. <laughs> and he fell asleep in both. But that was, his, that was his Protestant upbringing, is that movies are big city vice, you know, and Christians don't go there. So uh, why are we not funny? Uh, first of all, because we're... Northern European, and there's not a heritage of humor in Northern Europe. Uh, secondly, because we have looked at entertainment as vice for most of the last 200 years. Now, this is obviously changing, and TV did a lot to change that. You know, my parents, my grandparents wouldn't go near a movie theater, but then they'd watch The Love Boat on Sunday night. It was like, you know, every episode ended up with two strangers in bed. It was like, <laughs> Is this really okay with you? You won't go see a Disney film in a theater, but, you know, Duke's a hazard with Daisy Duke and her little shorts is just fine. I'm not quite getting it. But it was the, the medium of, you know, television was okay. It was okay. It's not big city vice. Movies, big city vice. Uh, that's largely why, you know, it's much more elaborate than, oh, well, apparently when you become a Christian, you lose your sense of humor. No, we do not have a tradition of humor. You know, the, the first, the first, interestingly, the first successful non-Jewish comedians in America were African-American. You know, Bill Cosby, uh, Richard Pryor. And what's interesting there is because you've got two communities uh, the, the African-American community and the Jewish community with long histories of repression, uh, you know, of, of getting beaten up, of getting looked down on, of getting spit on. And one of the ways people deal with that is develop a sense of humor about life. So because we were usually in a favored status, you know, we were the ones that people wanted to be. We were the ones in the country clubs keeping other people out we never really felt oppressed and we never developed a sense of humor to deal with it, which is another issue. So, which means the more that 
that the American culture kind of turns on us, the funnier we're going to get, which is, you know, you got to look for the silver lining. <laughs> and maybe we can write some better billboards. So I have great hope for the state of the art for Christian billboardry if we can only become more oppressed. What I'm working on. Um, the most popular part of, of Veggie Tales, I think, forever were Silly Songs with Larry, you know, which had Silly right in the name. Right? And, so, and now it's time for Silly Songs with Larry, the part of the show where Larry comes out and sings a silly song. And these songs disarmed people marvelously because they didn't have an agenda. I actually had people, you know, in the early years of VeggieTales write me letters saying, you know, I think I understand what you were trying to teach in the hairbrush song. You know, I think, and they had theories, you know, it was like, oh, that's surely, we'll find it. Hang on. We'll find the scriptural message in where is my hairbrush? Because they could not fathom the notion that a Christian would open their mouth purely for the intent of amusing someone and not somehow getting them closer to Jesus or coming down the aisle. Some kind of, where's the conversion experience in the cheeseburger song? I don't quite see it. But for many Americans, that was wildly refreshing, you know, that a Christian could just just wait, stop the show. I'm just going to say something funny. And then I'll, re- I'll resume the show after I've done, done saying something funny. Um, the trick with silly is knowing when to take things seriously and when not to. Uh, as a culture, we don't trust excessive sincerity. Um, hence the backlash against Barney the Dinosaur. Be exhibit A. Barney the Dinosaur never winked at the audience. He never said, you know, I know I'm being ridiculous. (laughs) Just so you know, I'm in on the joke. No, it was like, I love you, you love me, man, this is how I speak 24-7. I am always just nothing but loving you. Like, really? Because I find that a little weird. (laughs) And so... Even while young kids absolutely loved it because they just wanted love, their parents were like, you know, like, I don't, there's something wrong with that dinosaur, you know. Uh, Mr. Rogers, you know, similar. We love Mr. Rogers because of the way he made us feel when we were kids, you know. But if someone just, if a kid now just bumps into an old episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I mean, kids now are raised on humor. They're raised on, you know, tongue being firmly in cheek. They're, they're raised on not taking things seriously. So you bump into, you know, an icon like Mr. Rogers where everything is this tone. You know, everything is serious. I mean, I, I base Bob the Tomato on, on the idea of someone like me who's kind of intense uh, attempting to be Mr. Rogers, so the notion was, you know, if, if you wanted to be Mr. Rogers, but you didn't have it, what it takes, <laughs> how would that go? And that was Bob the Tomato. You know, he's, a, he's a, a continuously frustrated Mr. Rogers wannabe, you know, who wants to have that Zen-like calm, who wants to be like the happy monk in the monastery, you know, tending the garden and then spilling out wonderful teaching moments to the children that gather at his feet, you know, like animals to St. Francis. That was, that, I mean, that was the idea. Um, and that drove, that made it easy to write for him. 
you know, because I know, well, he's going to start the show. He's going to try to hit his Mr. Rogers Zen-like tone, and something's going to go wrong, you know, and he's going to just... And people always ask, well, why doesn't he like the song at the end? You know, the nice little song, and so what we have learned applies to our lives today. God has a lot to say. I mean, that's a Christian song. You're a Christian tomato. You should like the Christian song, right? And that's actually the number one most frequently asked question is, why... I'm wondering, why doesn't Bob like that song? And I have to explain, and apparently I didn't do it very well because uh, no one got the joke. The idea is, like, it, like I used to watch Captain Kangaroo, and, you know, and the same thing with Mr. Rogers. There's a point at the end of every show where suddenly music starts playing, which means it's time to wrap up the show. And the hosts, all, apparently they all know it's coming, so it's just like, oh, I hear that music. Wrap up the show. But, but Bob... He doesn't know why that song comes and, and who pushes the button that makes it play. That's the big question is, who is pushing that button that makes that song play? I'm supposed to be in charge. I didn't push the button. Who pushed the button? And so he doesn't like the song. It has nothing to do with that it's a Christian song. And I know that apparently that joke didn't work. But, but I ran with it for 20 years. If at first you do not succeed, just do the same thing again. We don't trust excessive sincerity, and excessive seriousness bores us. C-SPAN. Did you spend much time watching C-SPAN? No, no. Um, Theology lectures. I mean, it seems important that you should take theology classes. Do you actually want to take theology classes? No. People who can weave the two together, silliness and sincerity, have extraordinary opportunities to get their ideas heard and to influence culture. Uh, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. Why has C.S. Lewis influenced so many lives, whole generations of Christians? Because he's deep? Because he's brilliant? Well, yes, but there are other Christians that are deep and brilliant. That is not a singular occurrence in the church, in church history. Um, He is deep, And he is light, humorous, dare I say silly, and the combination is irresistible. We have tended in the American church to split things up categorically. You know, you are a comedian, or you are a preacher. You are a joker, or you are a prophet. You are a minister, or a jester. You are Billy Graham, or Jerry Lewis. We've segregated the world into people who take it seriously and people who don't. And then quite often the world returns the favor by the people who don't take it seriously, don't take anything seriously. And the people who take the world seriously take everything way too seriously. So what I'm arguing for is reintegration, uh, putting it back together, uh, reuniting lightness of being with seriousness of thought. Uh, Not every statement we make needs to have the gravity of Scripture behind it. But there is a type of humor that I think we should avoid and that I try to avoid as much as I can, though I do not always succeed. I grew up in a generation, I'm a child of the 70s, I grew up in a generation that had to deal with a new and a profound loss with divorce on a massive scale. Uh, my dad walked out when I was nine. 
uh, by the time I was in high school. I remember sitting at a, at a lunch table with 12 other guys, and at somehow the topic of divorce came up, and we went around at the table, and 11 out of the 12 had watched one or the other of their parents walk out the door. Uh, I got to college, and I had five roommates. When I got there, three, out of, the tw- uh, three of the five were kids of divorce. By the time we left college, five out of five were kids of divorce. Um, my parents loved the dry cocktail party wit of Johnny Carson, but we looked for a different kind of humor to mask the pain of our parents breaking their commitments. Many of us, to mask the pain of parental betrayal, we turned to sarcasm. So as where our parents loved Johnny Carson, we found our patron saint in David Letterman, whose sarcasm and twisted humor taught us that the best way to deal with life was to laugh at everything, to make everything a joke. And David Letterman begat John Crickfalusi and his seminal show Ren and Stimpy, which begat Mike Judge and his show Beavis and Butthead, which begat Trey Stone and Matt Parker and their show South Park. And we had found our voice. We were safe from the world as long as everything was treated as a joke. This is not what we're going for, uh, because a world where everything is a joke is a world without meaning. It is a profoundly unfunny world, ironically. I've often described sarcasm as cynical irony. Cynical irony is a a deadening thing. It is the most caustic form of humor. Uh, C.S. Lewis brilliantly describes sarcasm in the screw tape letters. Uh, He refers to it, uh, British sarcasm, he refers to it as flippancy. Uh, And in it, senior demon Screwtape writes to his protege describing the various forms of English humor. And the last one he mentions is flippancy. He says, and this is a demon talking, flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it is very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue or indeed about anything else. But any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy, being God, that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect, and it excites no affection between those who practice it. Lewis, no doubt, was describing certain folks he'd observed in 1940s England, but 50 years later, his description fit to a T the perpetually snickering late 20th century American teen raised on David Letterman and personified by Beavis and Butthead. So, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to live with lightness. I'm trying to take time to notice the incongruities, the ironies of life. But when we're steeped in sarcasm, and I grew up extraordinarily sarcastic, uh, and it was, it was interesting because many of my sarcastic friends, even some that wrote on, on VeggieTales, would, were great with the humor, but they couldn't bring themselves to teach. <laughs> I actually had a script handed to me once 
that just had where the teaching parts were supposed to be, and then Bob will say something serious here. (laughs) And it was left for me to write in those parts because they knew that I could be sincere. Uh, Sincerity to to someone raised in sarcasm is terrifyingly vulnerable. When we're steeped in sarcasm, we're afraid to be sincere. Sincerity feels too risky, too exposed, too vulnerable. That's the issue. We need to be silly and vulnerable. And sarcasm, the mocking of life, leads in the opposite direction. I am not a proponent of humor at the expense of taking life seriously. And this is the balance that is so tricky to find. Uh, silliness comes from joy, which comes from experience, experiencing the redeeming love of God. I don't know how you can really feel God's love for you and not laugh. I mean, not just explode in joy. And I don't know how we can look at each other and the ridiculous ways we try to deal with our own fallenness and sometimes not burst into laughter at ourselves. Bringing out the lunacy, this is something that Louis, uh, Louis C.K. You know, or Craig Ferguson are so good at, bringing out the ridiculousness of life and exposing it. Just saying, look at what we, we think makes us happy. Look at what we think makes us happy. You know, and I just love Craig Ferguson's bit about the idolification of, deification of youth. I want to play, <laughs> play one more thing. And this is just, I have found that sometimes to really go off, you know, and be as silly as, as, you know, to see how silly you can be, I can't do it as myself, because people will quote me. (laughs) Phil Phil Fisher said this. It's like, no, I was being funny. That was a joke. Uh, That's where characters come from. So you can say things as characters when I'm doing live radio. Sometimes I'm doing a live radio interview, and they say, hey, can you do a character? Um, I want to interview Bob the Tomato. And I'm usually like, no, no, you don't want to interview Bob the Tomato because he can't really go off. You know, he has to be very careful because he's trying to be Mr. Rogers. You want to interview Mr. Lunt. Mr. Lunt. If it's live radio, I want to do Mr. Lunt because Mr. Lunt can get away with almost anything. He can just, you know, he can, and it's not, it's not Phil talking, you know, well, that was Mr. Lunt, so you understand. And for some reason, he can get away with, but, but on uh, what's in the Bible, Sunday school lady is kind of similar. So I did a call in, uh, a friend of mine does a, a Christian comedy radio show. There actually is such a thing. And uh, he had me call in as Sunday school lady and just kind of go off on some topics. And this is... Support line, who's this? Hello, this is Sunday School Lady. Who am I speaking to? Sunday School Lady. What an honor. Oh, really? What's the support line for? Is it in case I need more um, hose for my legs? Um, yes, it's... Well, no. No, not at all. No, it's... Well, I suppose it's kind you of... You know, support can be beautiful. <laughs> would, you, would you say your support is beautiful? I have no... I don't have the kind of support that you're talking about. Who have you been supporting? Your family? Yeah, I suppose that's how I make my living, through comedy. That's not a living. You can't make a living telling jokes. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know what I did for a living? What's that? What'd you do? Well, I was a Sunday school teacher for 57 years, but before that... You get paid for that kind of work? No, you get paid in heavenly blessings. I see, I understand. (laughs) I 
am rich with heavenly blessing, I would try to take it to McDonald's and exchange it for a Happy Meal, and they would look at me kind of funny. But that's not the point. Uh-huh. You know what I did before I was a Sunday school teacher? What's that? What'd you do? I was a missionary. A missionary? Where were you a missionary? I was the first white woman in Tairian Jaya. Did you know that about me? No, I didn't know that at all. I brought the gospel to cannibals. Really? I did. And I, you know, cannibals, they can only eat food from a can. <laughs> I don't know if I didn't know that at first, but sometimes the problem with these cannibals is they had no canned food. They would get so hungry that sometimes they'd eat each other. Oh, is that the problem? So, so how did you resolve that problem for them? Well, I shared with them my heavenly blessings. Really? And I said, this is your food. Your new food is from heaven, Uh like manna, except less filling. And they said, we're not quite seeing it. Can you illuminate it a little more? They're very articulate for for godless heathen. I was quite impressed. But I taught them to eat bugs. That helped. Oh, that does help, yes. These are from heaven, because, of course, they don't know where bugs come from. (laughs) I was telling the truth. So they ate the bugs, and that seemed to solve their canned food problem, and they stopped eating each other. And that's that's why they asked me to come back from the mission field. They asked you personally, the Aryan Giants, to go no, back home? No, no, the mission board. The mission board, they said. Yeah, the mission board said, we think maybe you're done. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came back and I got a job uh, teaching Sunday school professionally, which not many people can achieve that level. sort of like uh, the Eagle Scout. You right, know? right. You, you, the, you get all your badges, you get your Old Testament badge and your New Testament badge, and you get your Apocrypha badge. I didn't use that very much. Not, Not many really. people have that coveted Apocrypha badge. No, the Apocrypha badge is rare. Yeah. You can, you'll see them on eBay every now and then for like a hundred bucks. Because <laughs> only seven were ever made. It's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Most well, congratulations on that. And I appreciate you calling in today. Very much appreciate it. You're very welcome. Have you been going to Sunday school? I, uh, yes, I have. I have. That's good. We, get, we don't have the... Do you do the flannel graph? Because I, I, I miss it. Of course I do the flannel graph. How on earth can you teach kids about God? Exactly. I believe the early church had a flannel graph. At some Paul had a flannel graph. He dragged it all over Macedonia. <laughs> Haven't you seen the pictures of Paul's flannel graph? I haven't. I, I, I guess I, I missed that picture. Is there Kids a, love flannel graphs, but you know why? Why? Because they're fuzzy. <laughs> you see, technology is so like if you have an iPad right. or an iPod right. or an iPad. An iPad, indeed. An iPod. <laughs> yeah, if you have any of those, they're cold, they're hard, they're sterile. But a flannel graph... It feels somewhere between a peach and the hair on your mother's arm. <laughs> yeah, the cannibals were, would respond to the fuzz of the flannel grab. What was the first story that you told of the cannibals? Um, it was the one, unfortunately, it was a poor choice. It was about Abraham when he was going to um, kill Isaac. Oh, I see. And they, they all said, oh, must be dinner time. <laughs> And I thought, oh dear, I think I made a terrible <laughs> theological mistake. Let's back up. <laughs> well, thanks for your help. Thank you, Sunday School Lady, for calling in. I feel, I feel immensely supported. Do and you? I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing. And Thank I will you. turn to you whenever I have a crisis of comedy or 
Sunday school theology. Well, I hope you call in again soon. Looking forward to it. Okay. So that's... I mean, I said things in there that I could never say as Phil. <laughs> but we, we usually don't even try. You know, we usually don't even try to go places or make fun of ourselves like that. And so we come across as sanctimonious and, you know, taking everything way too seriously. You know, for me, because I, I, just last week somebody said, hey, can you teach me how to be funny? I was like, no, I don't think so. It's just because it's a way that you look at the world. You look at things that everyone else is looking at, but you see them kind of askew. You know, there's just, it's looking at the world through, through fresh eyes, almost through, you know, children's eyes. There's an innocence to it. Um, silly is disarming. Silly isn't belittling. It should never be confused with mockery. Uh, and it isn't childish. It's childlike. There is innocence in silly, uh, but not ignorance. It's not about a lack of knowledge. A person exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, and love, will be prone to lightness of being, to seeing the silly in our otherwise workaholic tendencies, to see the silly in our own ambition. Silly is disarming, especially coming from a quote-unquote religious person. We have a reputation for taking ourselves way too seriously. Uh, when when uh, Jerry Falwell can be offended by a Teletubby, we're taking ourselves too seriously. Our work is important, but our burdens should not be heavy. They should be light. And lightness is the source of silly. And it is attractive to the world. Heavy Christians, morose Christians, burdened Christians are not very appealing. If we're filled with the joy of the Lord, we will be light not heavy. Joy provokes bouts of silliness. The Hutchman Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Special thanks to Andrew Osinga for the use of his song Perihelion One from his amazing record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut.